Well, how's everyone doing this morning? You know, I'm I'm really glad to be here. Unfortunately, my wife can't be here, um, so I really appreciate you letting me come anyway. So that's uh, that's a nice that's nice of you guys. So great. So um, I want to tell you about a science experiment that I once heard, and it's interesting because there's a group of monkeys out there. So maybe we can try it later on. But these scientists they wanted to examine the behavior of uh, of these monkeys, and so. What they did is they took a group of five monkeys and they attached shock collars around their neck and attacked and put them in a cage. And so all just hanging out in the cage and then the scientists would lower a, a set of bananas into the cage uh, waiting to see what would happen. So you can imagine monkeys seeing ban- bananas, what do they do? They go for them, right? There is a catch though. This is where the shock collars came in. The monkey that grabbed the, shock, the, grabbed the banana, all the other monkeys got shocked. So picture that. Five monkeys, bananas come down, first monkey sees it, grabs it, he's eating a banana, and what are the other four doing? Right? They're getting shocked, and they're like, what just happened here? Right? They can't believe it. They can't understand it. And the guy eating the banana is thinking, what's your problem, guys? This is good. I got a banana. So he's eating the banana, and, you know, this goes on for a little bit, and eventually the monkeys catch on that whoever gets the banana, the others get shocked. So eventually they learn this. So when the bananas come down, now all the monkeys are looking at one another. And they're all kind of eyeing one another and thinking, all right, who's, who's going to make that first move? And if any monkey made a move for the bananas, the other four would tackle them. Because they didn't want to get shocked. And so they would just tackle the monkey. And so eventually the bananas would come down and nobody would move. They'd all eyeball one another and maybe, you know, do some things to intimidate each other. But that banana would just rot there. Well, eventually the scientists would replace the monkey. They'd have put a new monkey in with a shock collar, but this shock collar was disabled. So it wouldn't work. So sure enough, these monkeys sitting there, all of a sudden a banana's lowered, and this new monkey, what does he think when he sees a banana? Go for it. I mean, for a monkey, his worldview is wrapped up in a banana, right? Everything is all surrounding this great yellow fruit. So he, he immediately wants to go for the banana. But what do the other four monkeys do? They tackle him. They get in his way. Going, uh-uh. Don't you touch. And the monkey's thinking, but banana. No, it doesn't matter. Don't touch. So he just eventually learns not to do anything. So every time a banana gets dropped, this monkey, he doesn't do anything. He just sits there. Well, the scientists replace another monkey. And they eventually replace all five monkeys. So they have new monkeys. None of them with active shock collars. But every one of them learned that when the banana gets dropped, nobody goes for it. And if you do, you tackle that one. So picture it. You have five monkeys sitting in a cage attacking each other and they have no idea why. Because not one of them were ever shocked. But they've learned to never let anyone eat the banana. And you know what we call this? We call this tradition. Right? We, we learn this behavior. We learn ways of, of dealing with things. And that tradition can vary from country to country, from culture to culture. Sometimes I think you don't even, you're not even aware of the traditions you have until you're confronted with a different culture. And you realize things are different than what you thought. You, the, the traditions are so deep down inside of us, so buried within us, we're reacting to them and we have no idea why we're even doing that. And I think probably the culture that has the most traditions or the most inbred traditions is probably any religious or faith-based culture. And I think part of that is simply because of all the religious ceremonies that we have built into our faith. 
For example, you have the Jews, and the Jews have had their seven feasts that they would do every year, and all their ritual cleansing and their sacrifices, and there's so much tradition built into the religion. But as Christians, we too have a, a, a large number of traditions built into our faith. Through our ceremonies and our rituals, such as baptism, or uh, how much you read the Bible, and, and um, even the fact that we're celebrating church on Sunday morning is a tradition. A tradition started by the early apostles when they wanted to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. Back home in Canada, church services all began at 11 a.m. And the reason for that was the farmers. The farmers would be done all their chores, get cleaned up, and then come to church for 11 a.m. That was just a tradition. And now, even though in the cities where there are no farmers, guess what time church starts at? 11 a.m. And it's just something we do over and over and over again. And, and traditions aren't bad. Traditions aren't wrong. There's nothing wrong with traditions. The, in fact, traditions can be very powerful motivators. They can help us to, to, to realize what's important, what's significant, and, and they become incredible ways to just aid us in life. The problem is, the difficulty is, when we lose sight of what's behind the tradition. When we forget what the tradition is pointing to, what, what the tradition, why it exists in the first place. And the writer of Hebrews was speaking to us on that fact. I think in Hebrews 13, 8, he writes that remember those who taught you the word of God. Remember your leaders. Remember those who have come before you. And he says, imitate what? You know, many, many times I've heard teachings. I would expect him to say, imitate how they lived. Imitate the amount of times they read their Bible, how they prayed, how they worshiped, how they studied, how they did this and that. Imitate their behavior. And yet that's not what the writer of Hebrews says. The writer of Hebrews says for to imitate their faith. And, and this is coming right at the end or right after Hebrews 11, that great hall of faith, where you have all these great men and women of God who constantly, by faith, they did something. By faith, Enoch. By faith, Noah. By faith, Abram. By faith, Moses. Always by faith, by trusting and depending upon Christ. And the point of tradition is that it's to be a signpost. It's to, to point us, to remind us that we're to trust in Jesus. That's the point of it. But for some, they haven't seen that. They haven't discovered that or understood that. And eventually, the, the signpost, the tradition, replaces Jesus. Replaces what it's pointing towards. And at that point, it becomes very dangerous because now our Christianity is reduced to a very formulaic version of Christianity. One where we're all about making sure we're doing all the right traditions, all the right ways, making sure that everything's okay. Because if I do the traditions and I do them properly, then what does that mean? Only well, I'm okay. And so I've got to strive. I've got to make sure I'm doing it. And I've got to make sure I've got everything right. Problem is, we've reduced Christianity to living under the law. We reduced Christianity to a series of rules and regulations and we lost sight of the greatness of trusting Jesus, of, of relying and living from Him. And so the commands and traditions aren't bad. Caught that one. They aren't bad, but the danger is we lose sight of what it's about. So today, what I want to speak to, and what I've been asked to speak to you guys about, is one of probably the most common traditions in churches, one that is, has caught all kinds of problems with people that people have been bound up in, and that is this issue of tithing or giving. And so that's what we're going to speak on tonight. So hold on to your wallets. 
And let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord Jesus, that we, we have you in us today to speak to us, to encourage us. And, and this morning, as we talk about this topic on, on giving and tithing, something that has caused all kinds of, of bondage and, and grief for many people, I pray that in your word we would see the freedom and the truth. That we would discover how we can live in you in this one area in particular. So that our faith in you is not one that is formulaic and religious, but one that's alive and has a relationship with you. So I look forward to what you're going to accomplish this morning, Father, as you live in each and every one of us. In your name we pray. Amen. So I want, to, I want to start a little bit about some history of tithing and where it came from. I think much of our teaching and much of our understanding of tithing has come from the Old Testament. And it's a carryover from the Old Covenant, the, the covenant that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. And, and the purpose of the tithe or tithing, which would have been 10% of their crops, their livestock, anything they had. Today, we would just simply refer to it as 10% of our income. And so... The purpose of that tithe was simply to provide an income for the tribe of Levi. For you might remember that when the promised land was divided up, so when Joshua walks in and they conquer the promised land, and it's now time to divide it up. Two and a half tribes, they decide to stay on the other side of the Jordan River. Don't ask me why, but they did. So the remainder of the land is divided up. But the tribe of Levi got nothing in terms of land. Listen to what it says in, in, the, in the book of Numbers. The Lord said to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in their land, nor own any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance is among the sons of, of Israel. So you can imagine the Levites are sitting there going, I wonder what we're going to get. You know, is this, I saw some nice coastal land and the beach and maybe we'll get some mountains. What are we going to get? And what did they get? They got nothing. They got no land. And at that time, that's a big deal because if you got no land, you got no food. You got nowhere to stay. And so they're kind of wondering, well, God, what do you got for us? How are we going to provide? Well, it's great that we got you, but we do need to have food on our table. We, we do need to have clothes on our back. So how are we going to provide that way? And he goes on in the next verse. He says, and to the sons of Levi, behold, I have given all the tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service, which they performed the service of the tent of meeting. So the tithe, namely, it wasn't for God. Please understand, God doesn't need money. Right. He's OK. He's got a way to get by. I don't, maybe he's got an inheritance. I don't know. He's figured it out. He's self-employed. He's you know, he's OK. He doesn't need our money. The whole point of the tithe was simply to provide for the nation or the tribe of Levi, the priest, the priest, so that they would be able to work and devote themselves to serving in the temple and not have to farm and, and look after crops and so forth. And so all the other 11 tribes would come and they'd bring this tithe to provide for them. And, and so, despite this Old Testament command being for the Levite priests, many church leaders today have adopted that and said, well, now, you know, the church has replaced the temple worship and therefore you need to bring your tithe into the church. Your 10%. And I understand that. I mean, from someone who lives in ministry and, and has to live off, the, off of ministry, raising support is one of the, the most miserable things you have to do. Nobody goes into ministry and think, I get a fundraise. That's exciting stuff. I, I'm so glad I get to do that. Everyone in ministry, that's the one thing they hate to do. And 
And yet, I can understand why pastors and church leaders would look at this and say, you mean if I just tell people they have to give 10% of their income, I never have to fundraise? That would be great. And plus, if you think about it, if everyone brought 10% of their income in, would the church ever be short on money? Not likely. And so, it would be a great way to live. And so, I think what they've done as a way to not worry and make sure the bills are being paid, the appeal with this the appeal of this mandating a tithe is so attractive. And, and so one of the passages they use to, to, uh, to justify it is in Malachi chapter 3. And you might have heard this. If you've done any studying on the tithe, you've probably heard this passage. So Malachi 3, verses 6 to 12. Let me read it to you. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows, then I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that you will, it will, so it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grape, says the Lord of hosts. All the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. Now we have to have an understanding here of what God's saying to these people. The book of Malachi was written roughly a hundred years after Israel came out of captivity from Babylon. So the temple's been rebuilt, the, the wall has been rebuilt, the, the life has basically, you know, they've kind of settled back in to life in, in Israel. And a hundred years from, uh, later after they returned, things aren't going so well. They're having some problems with the weather, they're having problems with crops and so forth. We might just think of it as an economic downturn, a recession, maybe a depression of sorts. And so they're worried, much as many people across the globe are worried about today and how are we going to provide for and how are we going to look after things. And so what's happening is time of drought, instead of bringing the tithe in, they're holding back because they're thinking, how do I give when I don't know if I'm going to have for tomorrow? And so they're worried. In essence, who are they trusting in? They're trusting in themselves. They're thinking, I need to have a nice storeroom, a nice storehouse where I have food in case the weather doesn't improve, in case the crops don't come in, then I'll be okay. And they're hedging their bets. And God's saying, trust me. Look after me. I've commanded you to provide for the Levites to bring the food in. Remember, he didn't need the money. He was thinking these Levites, they need the food. They need the, the clothes. So you need to bring it in for them, for their sake. But you're not trusting me in this. You're trusting in yourself. And so that was what it was all about. And the principle of trusting God is true today. I think that's the major takeaway for you and I in this passage. Will we trust God? Will we trust Him with everything that He's asked us of? Or will we continue to trust in ourselves? The problem is, I think what people have done is they've taken away from this passage the Old Testament command of tithing. And, and the reality is, that doesn't apply today. The Old Testament command of tithing is a tradition under the Mosaic Covenant. The Old Covenant, which no longer applies. You and I, as New Covenant believers, are not under the Old Covenant. We've been set apart from it. We've been set free from it. 
The problem is, I believe, there's been a lot of misunderstanding of these two covenants. And what's ended up happening is we've blended the two together. We've blended the old and new covenant. And what ends up happening is you've ruined both. You lose the point of what the old covenant was about and you lose the grace and the power and the freedom that's found in the new covenant. So the old covenant or the law, which was given to Moses, was basically a system of striving, a system of performing, of do's and don'ts. And based on your ability to perform, your ability to follow the commands, you were either blessed or you were cursed. So it was a reward system. If you do this, then God will reward you with that. But here's the problem. The old covenant was a setup. See, it was never it was never intended as a system by which God gave to mankind and saying, this is how I want you to live. It was a setup to show man that he can't do it. I think in essence, you know, we think back to the, the two trees in the garden, the tree that man was not to eat from. What was it called? The tree of knowledge of good and evil. I think we could just call it the tree of law. I kind of wonder sometimes if the fruit on the tree was kind of like those sweetheart candies. Do you guys have that here, the sweetheart candies, where they have little messages on them? You are loved. You're so sweet. You know, all those things. I kind of picture the tree of knowledge of good and evil that way, whereas on each fruit was a different law. Thou shalt not murder. Oh, look what I got. Don't murder. Isn't that interesting? Don't steal. Oh, I got don't steal, right? Don't covet, right? They got all these different commands kind of written on the tree. That's kind of picture it. I'm, I don't think that's biblical. I just have an imagination, I guess. My creativity coming in. So, But there's, that was the law. And, and that's what man chose when they ate from that tree. And so I think when God gave the law, he said, okay, listen, I'm going to give you what you want. You want to live by a series of rules. You want to live by good and evil. Here it is. And he codified it for them. He gave them the Ten Commandments, but he gave them 603 other commandments as well. 613 total commands found in the first four books of the Bible. And he says, go for it. Here it is. And you've got to do it, but here's the standard. You've got to do it how well? Perfectly. For how long? Forever and ever. How often? Always. What are the odds of that? Zero. Right? In fact, that was what the point of the Sermon on the Mount was about. It was to show to us how impossible the lie is. You heard it said, Jesus, don't murder. And you think, well, I haven't killed anyone yet today, so I'm doing good. Well, I'll tell you what, if you hate your brother in your heart, you're guilty of murder. He set the bar not higher. He set it to where it belongs to show the impossibility of ever measuring up to that kind of a standard. So why would God give the law if not to show us how to live? was to show us the impossibility of you and I living that way. To frustrate us. To, to show us that there's got to be a different way. And that new way was the new covenant. A new way of living. And that was ushered in at Calvary. Now, at Calvary, much more took place than just Jesus dying for our sins. What else took place at Calvary? Who else died? We died. We were crucified with Christ. You're going to get there when you go through your study in Romans. When you get to Romans chapter 7, in the first six verses, Paul explains to you and I, he says, do you not know that, that when we were crucified with Christ, we were also crucified to the law? That we were set free from the law, that the law no longer bounds us, 
that we don't serve according to the old covenant, the letter of the law, but now we serve under the new covenant according to the Spirit. And so what's happened now is we live a different way. Whereas the old covenant was all on you. You've got to do it. Here are the commands. Go to it. The new covenant is all on who? It's all on Jesus. Jesus living inside of you and I through us to enable and to empower us to do as he leads. That's what Philippians 2, 12 and 13 says. That God is in you both to will and to, to work, to do according to his good pleasure. So God's in you not just to lead you, but to actually pull it off. And so that new covenant now goes back to that main principle in Malachi, which is, will we trust him? Will we rely on him or will we rely on our own strengths? That's what it's about. And so these 613 commands, the Ten Commandments, you and I are free from that now, including the command to tithe. That's not part of the new covenant anymore. In, in essence, really, the new covenant has one single command. It's a great command. First John 3.23. And it reads this. This is the commandment that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded us. So in a nutshell, it's trust Jesus. For salvation, yes, but that's just the start. That's just the beginning. That's the introduction. Trust Jesus now each and every day. Trust Jesus each and every moment to do what? To love. To love your spouse, to love your kids, to love your parents, to love your friends. But maybe even more importantly, to love your enemies. To love those who put you down, who have shamed you, who've hurt you, who've rejected you. The ones who are unlovable and don't love you. How do we do that? Well, the one inside you can. And so we trust Jesus to love people. And so as a result of the cross, we've been set free from the obligation to give, to tithe. You no longer have to tithe under the new, co- uh, the new covenants. Now, some have pointed out and say, well, yeah, that's, that's true. We're not under the old covenant anymore. But tithing actually supersedes the covenants. And, and they make the argument for this one because the, the first appearance of the word tithe actually shows up with Abram. Or Abraham, but when he was called Abram. In, in Genesis chapter 14. In this story here, Abram, he'd gone and he rescued his nephew Lot. He defeated five kings who had kidnapped Lot. And in the process, you know, you have the spoils of war. You have all their, their jewels, their diamonds and everything. And, and he's trucking back across the desert with all the spoils of war when a guy named Melchizedek shows up. Now, Melchizedek was the king of what was called Salem at the time, later called Jerusalem, a high priest of God. And together, Melchizedek and Abraham, they worship God. And it said that Abram gave a tithe. 10% off the top of the spoils of war to Melchizedek. And they say, well, see, Abram, he is before the Old Covenant, and therefore this issue of tithing, it supersedes the Old and New Covenant, and therefore is always in existence. Well, that's some really faulty logic. Here's the first reason why it's faulty logic. One is, there's nowhere in Scripture that says that that's the case. Nowhere in Scripture is God saying, this act of tithing, by the way, will continue forever and ever and ever. That's not it. In fact, if it was the case, then I think the apostles in the New Testament writings would have said something about it. And what I've done is i put all the verses in the New Testament on tithing on the screen here. Do you see them? 
It's not there. You can search and you won't find any of the letters from the apostles, any of the epistles instructing new covenant believers to tithe. Now, there's something called giving that we're going to talk about, but tithing itself, that mandatory obligation of giving 10% of your income, that's not talked about. That's not mentioned. Here's the other problem with the idea that Abraham tithing to Melchizedek supersedes and therefore is still in his existence to today. If that's the case, if there's something outside of the New Covenant that was laid out for us in the New Testament that still is still around or still exists, then we're all in trouble. Because what else is out there? So there's tithing. Is there, is there certain commands about what colors not to wear? Are there certain commands about what clothes not to wear? About what kind of foods to eat? Are there certain commands about other rituals and sacrifices that we need to do that also supersede the new covenant? You see, if it's not included in the covenant, it's not included in the covenant. It's not in the relationship. And the point of the covenant was to lay out exactly you and I, what are the terms that you and Father interact with one another. And he's laid it out really clearly for us. So that we can know that there isn't something else out there. Wondering, have I done enough? Have I done all the right things? I mean, just imagine for a moment you engage in business with somebody. And they ask you to build something. Or create something. My wife, she's into crafting and she makes all kinds of incredible crocheting and knitting things. And So imagine someone asks her to crochet a shirt. So she goes and she crochets a shirt and she brings it to them for an agreed upon price. And they say, that's great, that's wonderful. You know, we had this agreement, but I was really hoping to have pants with it too for the same price. So, where are my pants? What my wife say? Well, it's not in the agreement. Well, it's okay, it supersedes the agreement. You need to include pants anyways. What would we do? We'd say, that's not fair. That's not right. Well, why would God then say, this is the agreement, this is the arrangement, this is how we're going to relate to another in the New Covenant, And oh, by the way, there's some other things here as well. Does that make sense? No. Nothing supersedes the covenant. Nothing is outside of the covenant. If it's in the covenant, it's in the covenant. But if it's not, it's not there. And that's why it's so important to understand that the new covenant never, never talks about tithing. What it does talk about, like I said, is to trust him and love. Love God, love yourself, love other people. Love. That's the New Covenant. Now you might think, well, aren't there more commands in the New Testament? Sure there are. There are all kinds of commands. But I like to think of those commands as essentially being a deeper commentary on that one command, to trust God and love. Kind of, you know, next time you read through these commands, picture that. Read it from that perspective. If the command is to trust God and love other people, read all the other commands about don't steal. Right? That's what Paul says in, in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. Those who steal, steal no longer. said, work hard. Why? Well, when you steal from people, they don't feel loved. They really don't. Go try it sometime. Or let someone try it on you better. See how you feel, right? You don't feel loved that way. And so really, these New Testament commands are a deeper explanation of what it means to love. And I think the power of that is that when God speaks to us now and He's inviting us to do something... We recognize it as being love. Because here's the thing. Without that description, we wouldn't know what love is. We would be so blinded, so deceived into thinking that love is something that it's not. 
That's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 does that great passage of describing what love is. And you know what the one word used to describe or summarize what love really is? It's Jesus. It's the character of Jesus. He came and he displayed that love. He came and he showed what real love is. And now he says to you and I in John 13 that as his disciples, as we abide in him, we're going to love other people. And the world will know that you're my disciples by how you love. Could you imagine a church that loves like Jesus loves? What would the world think of that? I don't think we could keep the world out. I've always been fascinated by this story. It, t- it talks about the, the early church in the first and second century. And at that time, Christianity was seen as a cult. It was, a, it was an outlier. It was still persecuted. And they had all kinds of lies and deceptions going on around about what the church is. They had lies thinking that, you know, that the church was cannibal. They would eat people. And they got that from Jesus when he said, come eat of me, eat of my flesh. And so they hear this and think, man, these Christians are weird. They eat people. And not only that, they believe in child sacrifice. Because Jesus said, let all the kids come to me and come follow me to the cross. So clearly, they all teach child sacrifice and eating people. Now, is that a kind of group you want to be a part of? No. But here's the interesting thing. Even though that's what they, they thought and they believed, people still said, you know, there's something about how they love that's really attractive. And I'm so curious, I'm going to go check it out. I might get eaten. I might lose my kid. But you know what? The way they love is awesome. And that's what it's about. It's, it's about loving God, loving yourself, and loving others as you love yourself. And so that's, that's what this new covenant command is all about. And so he's not instructing us to tithe. He's not instructing us to give a mandatory 10% of your income. Instead, various passages talks about giving. And giving and tithing are not the same thing. It's not just semantics. They are very, very different. Where one is a demand, the other is, is a free will gift. It's something that you choose to do. You don't have to. There is no obligation. And, and we're going to talk more about that difference in a moment. But before we do that, I want to share with you a little bit about the reasons to give. And I, I look through scriptures and I see basically two broad reasons why we are to give in our churches. The first reason, really, is just simply to help those who are in financial need. In, in 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about what he called the Jerusalem Fund, or what some have called the Jerusalem Fund. He was inviting the Gentile churches, he was collecting offerings from them, to take these finances back and give to the church in Jerusalem. And the reason for that was that Jews who were believers, Christian Jews, they were under tremendous persecution in Jerusalem. They wouldn't be allowed to buy or sell goods. Meaning they had no food on their table and they couldn't make income and because they were ostracized. Some were kicked out of their homes because of the faith. And so what Paul is doing is he's collecting from these Gentile churches that were doing well and helping those who are not. And so I think for you and I today, that same principle applies that we're to give to those who are struggling, especially to the church, but not only to those in the church. We're to give to anyone who's struggling and And that doesn't necessarily only mean to those overseas that are struggling. You know, the the children in Africa, they don't have have clean drinking water. By all means, that's an opportunity to give, but it's not the only way. It might be the guy down the street. It might be your parents. It might be a child. It might be a friend, another loved one. 
It's anyone who is in need financially. We're to help. We're to bless those people. And, and what a tremendous opportunity that is to show that love. To say, I'm going to give out of what, God, what God's given to me. And I'm going to help you and bless you because I love you. It's, it's putting, so to speak, your money where your mouth is. It's, it's putting in action what we say, I love you. And here's how, let me show it to you. And, and just so we're clear, giving is far more than just money. Money is merely one resource that we have to offer. We have so many other things to give. We've got our time. We've got our talents, our creativity, our abilities, our passions. We've got acts of service to give. There are so many things that you can give. A hug. A helping hand. A meal. Or maybe one of those things that's so rare in this world. A listening ear. Not advice. Not trying to fix anyone. But just a listening ear. Or a shoulder to cry on. To hear what people are going through. There's so many ways to give. So many ways to bless other people. And financially just one of them. And so the first way I, reason I to give is I think to help those who are in financial, financial need. The other reason to give is to give to those who, who have taught you, those who have blessed you with the Word of God. Paul writes in Galatians 6 and 6, the one who ta- is taught the Word of God is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Or in 1 Corinthians 9, 11 to 14, if we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. So today we have teachers and preachers and pastors and ministry leaders and so forth. And there's nothing wrong with them living, making their living and generating an income from sharing the gospel. Because what that does is it frees them up to do the gospel. I mean, if they had to work a 40, 50 hour week and then on top of that, prepare messages or meet with those who are ailing or counseling or or having coffee with a friend or mentoring someone. There's only so many hours and so much energy in the day. And so what it does is similar to the Levite priest, where it allowed them to dedicate their service in the temple. Ministers of the gospel are able to devote their time to studying, to preparing, to counseling, to meeting. And so it is it is right to bless those who have blessed you. And I think the the form of that today essentially is to bless your local church and those who share, those who teach, because you know, what happens here isn't free. It isn't without cost. Whether you're, you're flying someone in like myself in to, to share or whether it's just renting the facility or, or buying the electronics or, or, you know, all kinds of different things or all the different programs that are going on in addition to what happens Sunday morning. Things like the wave and the small groups and, and just ways that the church can help those who are struggling. It, it, there is a cost. And it's not free. And so here, as a local body of believers, we have the opportunity to give for that purpose. The key, though, and this is really important, it's a free will offering. 
It's not a demand. It's not an expectation. It's not a, an obligation of 10%. You are free to give as much or as little as you want. It's entirely up to you. And what happens, I want to share with you, this is really important, the blessing that comes with giving. Because it's a tremendous blessing. Writing to the church of Philippi, after receiving a gift that Paul received from them, and acknowledging that gift, he, he wrote to them, and listen to what he says to them. Philippians 4, beginning in verse 10. He says, But I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at last you revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. What was the secret? Next verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Trusting Jesus. That was the secret. He goes on, Nevertheless, you've done well to share, in my, share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. But here's the key. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek the profit for which increases to your account. Here's the thing. Paul wasn't looking for their money. Because you know what? Paul didn't need their money either. Because who was going to provide for Paul? God was. And if it wasn't going to be through the church of Philippi or the church of Thessalonica, maybe it was going to be the church of Colossae or maybe the church of Antioch or some other way that God was going to provide for him. So he says, I didn't need the money from you, but I accept it for your sake. You're the one that's rewarded by giving to me, Paul says. Because what ends up happening is whoever you give to, you are now partnering with them in their ministry. Think about that. Every time you give to, to Barbados Grace Fellowship, you are partnering in. You, you join in the work that's being done here. Whether it be what happens here Sunday morning, or what's happening in the, in the wave, or what's happening in the small groups, or what's happening with the, the surfing ministry, or all the other different ministries, the counseling and the, and the mentoring and all the things that are happening. You participate in that. Now, you might not know what's going on. You might have no idea what's happening. And one day, probably on the other side of eternity, you'll discover exactly what was been credited to your account. The work that was done by you through someone like Rietta or Lori. The work that was done by someone like Marie or anyone else. The blessing that you've been be a part of through your giving, through your, through your gift. And to me, that's incredible. So how do we apply all this then? Well, let's return to the difference between giving and tithing. Remember, tithing is a mandated amount. It's an obligation that you have to give. Whereas giving is that. It's a gift. A non-obligation, free will gift. Galatians 5.1 says it is for freedom that you are set free. Meaning you are completely free. There's a saying in, in, my, in my neck of the woods that we like to say is no expected response. And you know, with God, there really is. There is no expected response. He didn't love you expecting something in return. He just loved you because that's who He is. Now, He wants the return. He wants you to trust Him and love Him. But that's not why He loves you. There really is no expected response. He sets you free to be free. So you're free to not tie. 
you're also free to not give. But you're also free to now give. Do you hear that? You're free to give now. You're free to to really bless, to really give an offering. One that has no compulsion, no obligation. But I think that's what makes it so hard for us. You see, if there really is no expected response, if there really is no standard by which we're being measured by, how do we know I'm okay? How do we know that, that everything's all right? You know, I, I flew down here on Friday and, and I remember conversation uh, with Nicole and, and asking, so you want me to come down and, and what do you want me to do for the week that I'm there? Well, I want you to sit in on the wave and the small groups and preach on Sunday. Okay, what else? What else do you want me to do? What do you want me to do at the wave? Just, just sit and participate as God leads. Okay, what else? Like, tell me. Because in my mind I'm thinking... How do I, how can I justify the expense of flying me down here? How do I, I mean, that's, it's not a free ticket. It's not a cheap ticket, especially this time of year. So how do I justify my, my expense? And so I'm here yesterday during the wave and I'm thinking, I gotta do something. You know, maybe there's something I gotta share. Maybe some profound wisdom. Lord, come on, give me something, Lord. Nothing. I'm like, well, maybe I can help out. Maybe I can, maybe I can serve the food, Lord. Is there something I can do there? And every time I ask, is there something I can do? You know what the answer was? No, it's okay. So I'm sitting there going, how do I know I'm enough? And I'm struggling here thinking, there's, there's got to be some way to justify my presence here. But I got nothing. And so I'm left with simply trusting that what God's doing in me is enough. And that's unsettled ground. That's, that's not solid ground. I think of this story. How many people have read the book Paralandra by C.S. Lewis? It's an interesting novel. It's C.S. Lewis who wrote the, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and the, the Narnia series. He wrote another short series, three books. One was Paralandra, or The Trip to Venus, I think is another name it's called. And on that, this, this character, he rides on this other planet and He's trying to convey to you and I spiritual truths. But on this planet, he says you can you walk on, on the water, on a carpet on water. But the problem is walking on water, it's, it's not solid ground. It's constantly moving up and down. And when they first get there, the solid ground is very safe and secure. The problem is you can't stay there, he says. You have to live off on this unsettled ground that's moving up and down. And that's what like living by faith is. It's very unsettling. Because it doesn't feel very sure-footed. We're so used to steady, predictable, I know it's going to happen. Faith, up and down, changing. And that's why I think we're attracted to the tithe so much. Because I've, I've given my 10%. I'm doing okay. I can check it off. God, you're pleased with me. You can't be angry with me. But if I give according to faith, well, now I... I gotta go talk to him. I gotta go listen to him. I gotta trust that he's saying to give this amount or to give my time or to serve in this way. And now I gotta go trust him to do it. And I gotta trust him to provide for what I've given away. The whole thing runs off faith. But that's the coolest thing. Because what ends up happening is now I have entered into an encounter. I've entered into an experience where I did it with my father. 
real intimacy takes place now. Where Jesus and I, living together, got to do an act of righteousness. And whether you give 1%, 10%, 25%, 50%, or no percent, you give as Father leads you to give. Let me close by reading one last passage. And I think this will kind of apply it and summarize exactly what Paul's saying here about what New Testament giving is all about. It's in 2 Corinthians 9, verses 7 to 12. He writes this. Each one must do just as he is purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Let me read that again. Each one must do just as he is purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, no obligation, no expected response, for God loves a cheerful giving, one that's giving freely. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Anything He's asking you to give, He's provided to give in the first place. And if you give, He'll give you something else to replace it. He will always provide everything you need. You'll never be in want. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. As it is written, He scattered abroad. He gave to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. And you'll be enriched in everything for all liberality for which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you have given to us. You have blessed us financially. You have blessed us with food on the table, clothes on our back, a bed to sleep in, a roof over our heads for when the rain and the sun's shining. You look after us, Father. But you've also blessed us with healing. You've blessed us with restoration of our souls. You've blessed us with peace. You've blessed us with the ability now to love other people. But Father, you've also blessed us with the fact that now we're loved. We're accepted. We are righteous, holy saints, able to stand in your presence now. All because of what you've done. You've blessed us with that. You've blessed us with the gift of forgiveness, the gift of righteousness. But maybe the greatest gift of all, the indescribable gift, is your Son, Jesus Christ. Who you have given to each and every one of us inside of our hearts. May we learn now to listen to His voice. May we learn now to trust Him, to rely upon Him in this area of giving, be financially, our time, our resources, our service, our love. May we follow You and experience that life in You. In Your precious name we pray. Amen.